All right, Forge family, uh, this is uh, an introduction to the book of Zechariah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set a historical platform, a stage for you that's going to span about 150 years. And right in the middle of it, pretty much, comes Zechariah. But you see what leads up to him, and you will see what flows from him in that space of time. Uh, if you want to wind the clock in your mind back, to we, we were in the book of Isaiah for a while on the... Uh, the servant psalms, but Isaiah's prophecies um, date about 730 BC, and he was he and other other uh, prophets in Judah kept saying to to the to the nation of Judah, turn from your idolatry because uh, there's great judgment coming if you don't do that. In fact, it may be of greater judgment. Uh, then even is going to fall on the nation of Israel, the ten tribes to the north. <clears throat> and that, that happens in the interim, if you will. <clears throat> um, so you want to roll 125 years forward from Isaiah's prophecy to, to uh, the start of the uh, 7th century B.C. I think that's how we count it. It's uh, 605 B.C. And... Um, um, at that point, Pharaoh Necho is leading his entire army up from Egypt, and he approaches Judah, and he sends a message through to Jerusalem to King Josiah of Judah, and he says, don't come out to battle against me. I'm taking my forces. I'm going to cross your land. I'm going through Judah. I'm going to go through the lands of Israel. I'm going to go through Syria. I'm going to go all the way out to the to the uh, Euphrates River. Don't come out to fight me because God has told me I'm supposed to go to this place up on the Euphrates River. The question is, who, which God told him to do that? Better very well it may have been God Almighty that told him to do this because uh, <clears throat> King Josiah ignores the warning, takes his armies, goes out into the Valley of Jezreel and dies. And Pharaoh Necho keeps going. He takes his chariots and his infantry and his lancers and his you know his horsemen, and they they bust all the way north to the to the uh, Euphrates River. And so somewhere on the map there, you can see I don't know whether does it say Carchemish because that's where he's going. And Carchemish is in today probably in Turkey or or very very northern Iraq. Um, and on the bank of there, he gathers uh, Pharaoh Necho gathers with the remains, if you will, of the of the forces of Assyria, and they will go to battle against Babylon, which has the follow. They have they have uh, allies of the Persians, the Scythians, and the Medes. So these are major warlike people groups that are trying to. Uh, they, they, what they want is regional power, and. Um, <clears throat> Uh, they go to go into this battle at Carchemish, and um, the and the Egyptians are squashed. They are they are driven away, and they cease to be a regional power from that point forward. So it's as if God said to this Pharaoh Necho, "You go up there," and but God didn't tell him the answer. What was going to happen? <laughs> he just assumed God's sending me up there, and that's got to work. You know, I got to win. And yet the Lord had had no. Uh, no good things to say about the whole nation of Egypt at any time, other than the fact that his son spent some time there to get away from King Herod. Uh, <clears throat> so nothing now stands in the way of, of Babylonian rule. 
Uh, they were bigger, stronger, faster, smarter than the Medes and the Persians and the Scythians, even all combined. And so and in 600, five years later, uh, they come to Jerusalem and they demand hostages. In other words, they're, they're, taking, they're taking Jerusalem, not quite captive, but they're make, trying to make sure that Jerusalem pays its dues. It pays its taxes to, to Babylon. And the way that they're going to make that happen is they take Daniel, they take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the other princes, the leader's sons, and they haul them off to the court. They didn't put them in jail. They took them into the court to train them and raise them up as, as uh, multinational leaders. But that starts the clock running on um, Jeremiah's 70 years of captivity. So I want to read Jeremiah chapter uh, 25. I know. Well, once upon a time I had a pair of glasses. It helps to have clarity when you read the scriptures if you can actually see what you're reading. Here we go. Right there. Okay. There we go. All right. Jeremiah 25, verse 8. And we begin. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, and he's speaking to Judah, okay? Because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. Fascinating. This is a pagan emperor, my servant, okay? And will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take them from take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp. And this whole land will be a desolation and a horror and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Elijah, I'm excuse me, um, Jeremiah uh, says, when you go out to captivity, you're going to go for 70 years and be slaves. You're going to be captives. You're going to be in exile. You're going to be transported from the, the nation of Judah all the way up north. And on your map, you can see where they had to go. You have to go way north up the coast, and then you turn inland to get to the water, to get over to the Euphrates River, and then you follow the Euphrates River all the way down to Babylon. <clears throat> So uh, in 586, four years later, is that right? No. Yeah. Anyway, uh, 14 years later, the Babylonian forces under Nebuchadnezzar demolish the temple of Solomon. They come back to Jerusalem and they, they demolish the temple. They, 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 they started a fire and the fire inside the temple made things that were gold to melt and it ran into into in between the stones and so the Babylonians just came in and pried stone after stone apart to get all the gold all the treasure they took all the bowls of sil- of silver and gold and bronze all the temple service they swept it away and took it back to their treasury as, as a trophy they they leveled the walls of Jerusalem and they and they just er- erased the city of David, if you will, the, the, royal, the royal place in, in Jerusalem. 
Okay, now time starts to pass. Time flows along here. Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and, and Daniel, that's a whole other story. But finally, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and he is replaced by Belshazzar. Okay, and Belshazzar is an emperor over Babylon, and um, in one night he decides he's going to throw a feast to honor his god. So he sends to the treasury and brings the gold and silver bowls, the bronze bowls, and all the paraphernalia out of his treasury that were hanging in the temple of Solomon and were used in the, in the service of God Most High. Only he does this to honor his gods. So on that night in the middle of his feast, on the wall, remember what it said? Mene, mene, tekel, you farsen. Or something. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. It's probably old Persian or something. Means, it means uh, they were terrified by it. They see these shimmering words hanging on the wall. They sent for, they sent for Daniel. See, Daniel keeps serving for all these emperors all the way down the line. Okay, Daniel comes in and he, and he just translates it out. And he says, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And even as he speaks, the, the defensive uh, force, the defensive perimeters around the city of Babylon have been breached. And even as he's speaking, they, they believe that the, the Mede forces found a way to go under the walls uh, by um, uh, going in the river. They just held their breath and went under, they were washed under the, under the walls. And, uh, and came up with all their weapons in hand and they took the city. And so Belshazzar is wiped away and Cyrus the Mede becomes the next ruler. Okay, So the, the thing here, God, God's plans are already known. Let's go back to Jeremiah 25. It says, starting in verse 12, Then it will be when 70 years are completed. So if anybody is paying attention, that, that, the clock is ticking. When 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. And if you've ever seen pictures of a lot of Iraq and Iran, there's not a lot there. Okay, so the Lord follows through and says, there's a, you know, you took, you know, I sent you, to, to be my judgment on my people. But in the process, I'm not backing up your worship of false gods. So when 70 years are over, my judgment falls on you. So uh, in the middle of this, you know, when, when, when Belshazzar goes down, who, the man who rises is Cyrus. Um, he was a Mede. Uh, he had powerful military forces behind him, and he... And he uh, he pulled together an empire and he was called Cyrus the Great. We know about Cyrus through the writings of Xenophon, who was a Greek historian. Uh, we know uh, something about it from the Babylonian records, but those were typically almost completely wiped away. What we know about Cyrus comes from Greek records. And um, apparently Cyrus was an astounding leader uh, even today, the the uh, Xenophon's copy of about Cyrus, his, his his little book, that's still used in leadership training. Here's how to run an empire. It was so good, it has test, stood the test of time. <clears throat> um, and so Cyrus becomes Cyrus the Great, 
And he is an amazing ruler who compiles all these peoples. You can see on the map of the Persian Empire, all there's just a gazillion different tribal groups. There's, there's um, all kinds of people groups and all kinds of gods that are being worshipped. So um, what he does is he just leads them all together, and it's peaceful. And after he's done that, he has an encounter with Yahweh. Now we know that God says in, in Isaiah, I, you know, I'm going to choose Cyrus. This is 200 years. 200 years, nearly 200 years before Cyrus appears on the scene. But God names him and says he's going to be my servant. And, and, uh, and so there's an encounter between Cyrus and God. And uh, it is said in history that after that encounter, he worshipped none of the idols. It just, you know, prior to that he worshipped everything because he was trying to keep, keep peace. Oh yeah, you guys out there, sure, I'll buy it out of your God. All of a sudden he has this encounter with Yahweh and he stops worshipping and he, historically, history says he stopped worshipping all those other idols and he was just quiet about it. He didn't say what he was doing which was very unusual for an emperor. Usually the emperor is sort of the lead religious figure as well. And um, out of his encounter with God comes an edict, comes a decree. And the decree of Cyrus is all the Jews are free to go home. You're no longer slaves. You're no longer in exile. You're to go back to Jerusalem and you're to build a temple. So 50,000, nearly 50,000 in the first pulse and then more thousands later, start walking. And by the, he opens he opens his treasury. He says, "Here, here are the bowls. Here, you know, here's all the gold, the silver, the bronze, the shields, the things that were hanging on the wall, all the things that came from the temple in Jerusalem into the Babylonian treasury." He calls, you know, the the, the steward. The steward says, "Oh yeah, we have X number of these and these and these. They're all they're all offloaded and handed back to the Jews to go back to Jerusalem." So Cyrus. Uh, starts this move of Jews to leave Babylon and come back. Now, one of the kicks of this study is to find extra biblical evidence of Cyrus, for example. So in 1879, an archaeological dig in Babylon discovered a clay object that looks sort of like an elongated, deflated, hollow football. And I gave you a picture of that. That's called the Cyrus it's the one kind of on the black page it's called the Cyrus Cylinder and it is completely covered with cuneiform writing. And cuneiform is basically you, you have to work with almost dry clay and you take these little edged um, sticks and implements and you, you, you stab and you slash and you make dots and in, you know, you put essentially you're writing a language as you go along. Well, this cylinder that was found in the ruins in Babylon is now in the British Museum. Once it's translated, there it is. Cyrus released the Jews from captivity, sent them back to Jerusalem with their temple goods, and said, "Go build your temple." Um, and so when they get around to translating there, it basically, you know, talks about the, it's dated, and it talks about the events of his rule and the Edict of Cyrus that came somewhere in the early part of his 
of his um, of his rule because that 70 year period ends about 536. So he's been he's been in control for about about three years, bringing peace, coalescing in a a a, 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 a whole huge territory. And then he has this encounter with God, and from that comes this release of all the captivity to go back to Jerusalem. Now, when all those Jews came over the hillside and started walking down into Judea, they weren't welcome because there, the land had repopulated itself over the last 70 years. Uh, there was a percentage of the land, uh, people of Judah who got into caves and got under bushes and they hid, and they were not picked up in the dragnet that took everybody into captivity. They managed to hide out, and then they decided, well, we're going to be here, but then they decided to, to marry outside of the covenant. They married people from the land. It's sort of like going back to marrying the Canaanites again. It's similar to that, but not quite as gross. Okay, But that, that people group are sitting on the land. Here come 50,000 Jews to take back land that they once had Occupied, so this crowd is not very happy about being reinvaded, if you will, by Jews that were back, <clears throat> um, and they really go out of their way to disrupt and, and threaten the rebuilding of the temple. So nine years pass, and in um, 530, Cyrus dies in battle, and his son Cambyses he picks up the he picks up the role of the despot, and he pillages from from region to area to to state to he went into Judea and just stole everything that was stealable he just picked it all up and took it back to Babylon <clears throat> for a pure, very short period of time then he dies from a self-inflicted wound it said that he he stuck himself with a sword and he died from the result of the wound um, and one of Cyrus's commanders named Darius or or a um, anyway, let's go with Darius. Okay, he's one of Cyrus's commanders. He rises to rule, but again, it takes him some years to settle that the Persian Empire. You don't just show up and say, "Y'all follow me," because that isn't going to happen. You're going to have to fight for your. If you're going to be on top, you have to establish the fact that you really are on top. So um, we know of Darius because he, uh, in 521, he did a search through the Babylonian records and discovered the Edict of Cyrus. And he reinforced it and he said, absolutely, the Jews are to go home if they want to and they're, take, they're supposed to take their stuff back and go build a temple. So it wasn't just one emperor who, who said, do this. It was two. Okay, And then we know about um, Darius I. That's how he, he named himself after he kind of suppressed all the op opponents. Because there's of the Behistun inscription. So you have a picture of this in your hands. There's a rock face on a mountain in Iran on Mount Behistun. It's 330 feet up in the air. It's 82 feet wide and 49 feet tall. And it's carved. First they had to fly, you know, they just they carved it back. And uh, in the, there's a scene there where it shows... Um, Darius with his foot on one of the people that he had to overcome a usurper or a competitor or something like that and there are columns and columns of, of written records also on that rock face carved right into the rock 
They're in, in Old Persian, in Babylonian, and in Elamite languages. Well, the Western explorers found that rock face somewhere in the 1500s. I mean, the West knew nothing about this remote mountain face with all these records on it. And it was revisited, and, and you know, they, they had people come and, you know, check it out. Archaeology wasn't really quite in place until 17, 1800s. Uh, and those Westerners thought it was a picture of Christ mm. reigning, you know, based upon, you know, the, that they thought that all these Persians had, had become converted, and that was a picture of Christ. Well, in the mid-1800s, maybe middle 1870s, they finally got around to um, translating the Babylonian. Because they, they were able to translate the Cyrus cylinder, the cuneiform thing, and they, they finally figured out, this is this Babylonian. And they got that, that portion of it translated. Then they went over to the old Persian, and it's identical. What is said in the Babylonian columns of written, chopped into the rock record is exactly what is said in the old Persian, is exactly what was said in the Elamite language. And so it opened the door in terms of scholarship for all these ancient cultures that use these languages or, or uh, sister sister languages. <clears throat> so at 520 BC, Haggai uh, begins to prophesy at Jerusalem. He's the first prophetic voice after the exile. And two months later, here comes Zechariah. And he begins to prophesy in Jerusalem. Now Haggai's prophecies include scathing denunciations and glorious promises. But the whole focus pretty much from God through him to the people is get the temple built. Because they hadn't really done that. They, they got to Judah and they built an altar so they could kind of jumpstart worship again. They could, they, could have, they could have sacrifices. They could have priests. They could, they could have some semblance of national identity through their, their worship. But it, wasn't, it was outdoors. It was not covered by a building, etc. <clears throat> and then the, the pre-Samaritans kept pushing uh, on the edges. And so the people who were there lost heart in the whole project. They just kind of went and it slowed down and stopped. And so first you have Haggai saying get on your horse again guys. And then uh, Zechariah begins but he has a different call from God. Zechariah is saying to the Jews repent for your sins and begin to renounce, renounce Excuse me. that's the renunciation of the, of the sins of your fathers that got you in this mess in the first place. You know your forefathers just kept right on worshiping false gods and being totally out of compliance with God. And uh, don't do that. And so he, he sets out to have a spiritual change come to Judah. And one of the fruits then would be, all right, let's build the temple. So it, it ends up in the same place. But one, one is very direct at get this done, and the other one says, but your heart has to be changed before that means anything to you on the ground. <clears throat> in 490 BC, Darius I, the same guy who's on the wall there at the Behistun inscription, he sends his armies to crush the Greek army. See, the, Greek, the Greeks were rising in great power just on the edge of the Persian Empire. 
and on, on the map of the Persian Empire, way to the northwest, you can see where the edge of the empire is. Well, the Greeks had caused some rebellions. They had, they'd sort of got some of these regional leaders to not pay taxes, to sort of get in the face of, of uh, Darius. And so Darius had had enough of that, and he sends off his armies to take down the Greeks, and he loses. So the Battle of Marathon is, a, is uh, that's military college. You know, you go to West Point or the Naval College or whatever, you want to know how to fight a battle. You know, against superior forces, um, Marathon is one of those, okay? But that's just the start, because the next couple of hundred years, the Greeks and the, and the Persians keep going at each other until finally Alexander wipes away the Persians and establishes his own, uh, starts to establish his own empires and then dies, okay? In 486 BC, Xerxes rises as emperor, but he's also known as Ahasuerus. So in 476, 10 years into his reign, we have the scriptural record that Esther becomes his, his queen. And Mordecai is the faithful gatekeeper. Now we push another t- uh, 10 years, and Zer- um, Xerxes, not Xerxes, it's Artaxerxes, Okay, Artaxerxes rose, arose and attended. Uh, he's attended by a wine taster. Now, the wine taster is the in-house poison control system, and his name was Nehemiah. So everything that came to be handed to the king, it went over his lips, and then they watched to see: does he shake? Does he foam? Does he, you know, etc. You know, it's. But that's yes, that's right. But poisoning was a fine art. Okay, and uh, and so every king, every potentate had someone between himself and the outside world. Okay, and uh, twenty years into his reign, Nehemiah goes to him and appeals to him on behalf of the Jews, his own torn up heart, and the fact that Jerusalem lies with uh, flattened walls and burnt out gates, and and it is Artaxerxes who sends Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to. Put a wall around the temple. I did not. I meant, forgot to mention the temple's finished. Actually, it took four years to do it. They finished it in five sixteen. Okay, but then it sat there for another fifty years, sixty years, just a box in the middle of devastation. You know, there's no walls. There's nothing. Okay. Uh, at the same time, Ezra, the scribe. That's the book of Ezra that just precedes the book of Nehemiah. Ezra is just ending his life. He's just finishing his ministry, and he dovetails with Nehemiah just barely. Yeah, maybe months, maybe just a year or two, but they, they were uh, together a short period of time. Um, now, on Elephantine Island, oh, I know what I forgot. On Elephantine Island, uh, which is an island in the Nile, way to the south, Remember, the, the Nile runs from the south to the north into the Mediterranean. So there's some cataracts, there's some falls. Way, way to the south, there, are, there were border um, uh, fortresses that were built by, by Egypt, in this case. But they were garrisoned by Jews, uh, Jewish mercenaries, for hundreds of years. And in 1903, an explorer, just out to see what's out there in the middle of... Uh, I mean, it's... There's not much there along. You know, you've got the Nile River, and then out there's desert, and out there's desert. 
he he gets onto this island and into this complex of buildings, and he finds hundreds of these papyri records. Now, do you know what papyrus is? Mm-hmm. Papyrus is like uh, you'd say, well, cattails, or or mm-hmm. it's actually a sedge, but they grow in the water. They they like having wet feet, and they grow tall. They're five, six, seven, eight feet tall along the banks of the river, and you can take um, you can take papyrus. And you can strip uh, part of the skin, if you will, part of part of the, the layers of the of the. It's like a grass, you know. There's a, there's layers. It's sort of like a, a green onion, where there's layers and layers. You peel. You can peel off a layer, and you lay it out when it's still got juice on it, and you lay it out flat, and you lay it out flat, and then you enter, you you cross hatch, and and dry it, and what you end up with is a paper like. Uh, substance on which you can write, and if it's kept dry, and um, and protected, it lasts for thousands of years. In the Elephantine archives, this explorer found 175 of these of these um, <clears throat> papyri records that go back 2,500 years. And so I, I just photocopied one of them. Okay. Um, one of them is very clear about how to keep the Passover. And it's an ancient document on, on how to prepare for the Passover. And there was one that specifically names Sanballat, who is the opponent, the major opponent to Nehemiah as Nehemiah begins to build the wall. And it names Johanan, who was the priest at the time in Jerusalem. So these elephantine papyri uh, verify the the historicity of ne- the book of Nehemiah. So what you have here is about 150 years of of time with Zechariah stuck right in the middle of it. Okay, and if you want to look at American history, that means if you start from now and run backwards, it's we we 150 years is just after the end of the Civil War. It's about eight generations relatively short period of time. I mean, compared to, you know, papyrus has been around for 7,000 years. Okay? <laughs> you know, the the paper, the, that kind of paper, those those records are, some of those are 7,000 years old. And, um, uh, you know, here we are looking back 150 years, but in the middle of this, you've got a, the rise of God's man, Zechariah. Okay, and we, we know that he was born in Babylon he comes to Jerusalem as a youth, and he is—he uh, becomes a minor prophet like Haggai. Uh, he's a youth. Uh, he's referred to—he's uh, the same term that that uh, Saul used of David. No, you're just a youth. You know, you're just a—you uh, know—you're not even shaving yet. Come on. Um, it's a, it's the, it, so when he started preaching and prophesying. Um, he was a young man. He comes from the family of a high priest named Ido, who also immigrated back into Jerusalem, uh, the, into Judea. And his father's name was Berechiah. Now, uh, Zechariah is referred to in the text as, as a descendant or a son of Ido. So perhaps his dad, Berechiah, died early. And it was appropriate for him then to sort of clip his lineage back to his grandfather. Um, the prophecies from Yahweh through Zechariah 
are apocalyptic, which means it talks about the destiny of Israel. It talks about the coming of the Messiah. It talks about the end of the earth as we know it. And so um, he is quoted often in the New Testament. And perhaps even more amazing, that young man uh, was so uh, filled with Old Testament scriptures, he quotes almost every Old Testament writer in, in the book of Zechariah. You know, there's a, there's a handful that he doesn't, but uh, they may not have been in the canon that he recognized. You know. So as we, as we begin to start a study on Zechariah, I want us to pray. Lord God Almighty, thank you that you keep your promises. Lord, uh, you, um, you promised it was going to be 70 years of captivity because of, of gross uh, immorality, of gross worship of false gods. Because You had gone hundreds of years warning, sending prophets, and you, and you kept your promises, Lord. And now we, we long to be those who obey you and follow your ways, Lord. Now as we look at this Old Testament book of, of apocalyptic visions and prophecies, we ask you, Lord, to lift our countenance, to lift our hearts. Uh, we want to be those who stand ready to you know, for you on, on uh, right now, this day and this hour, what, what you have for us today. And Lord Jesus, uh, we want to stand ready at the day of your soon return. So we, we pray, Lord, that um, Zechariah and his uh, 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 prophecies of the coming Messiah will touch our hearts. Lord, um, I'm so grateful for stuff that I'm, I'm learning uh, as I study this. Pray it flows through these uh, podcasts, and uh, and we all uh, feel that sense of embrace from your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.